The word of God from Matthew 5, 21 through 26, and Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I invite you to remain standing with me as we prepare to hear from God's word. I'm going to be leading us in a prayer, asking God to open the eyes of our hearts to understand what he has for us, but also I want to pray for a sister congregation in our denomination, um, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where just this week, this Monday, the Covenant School that is run out of that church had a mass shooting event in a tiny little school. So uh, would you bow your heads with me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we, we come to you knowing that we've got our own stuff going on, but we know, Lord, that you're at work in so many places in the world in so many different ways. And Lord, we lift up to you today, Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville. Lord, we pray for the families of the students who lost their lives, Evelyn Dykus, Hallie Scruggs, William Kinney. And Lord, for those who worked at the school who gave their lives defending their students, the head of school, Catherine Kuntz, Lord, be with her family, custodian Mike Hill, Lord, comfort his family, and Lord, even a substitute teacher. Lord, just be with the family of Cynthia Peak. Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort and peace to them, that you would surround them with loving reminders of your care and your consistent presence in their lives. And Lord, we pray for all of us, that you would give us patience as we wait for justice to be done in this world and in this kind of tragic this kind of tragic happening. Lord, we pray that you would give us patience that we wouldn't try to find the reason this kind of thing happens. But Lord, you would give us patience for you to work things out and to change hearts and to change minds. Lord, we pray that you would give us sustaining hope for a future without violence or fear as, this, as the news of this impacting friends and loved ones 
has also led those who are just hearing about it on the news to have anxious thoughts about the children in their lives, whether they be their own children or their nieces and nephews or just the shared children in God's family. Lord, we, we feel the anxiety well up. Help us to trust you and have hope for a good future. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our neighbors, and for those who oppose us, Lord. And now, even as we go into your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. For we ask it through your beautiful son, Jesus Christ. And the people of God said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, uh, if you've been looking in the worship guide and seen what the topic of the sermon is today, you might be thinking to yourself, how did Jason draw the short straw? <clears throat> Every single one of these sermons that we've had on the seven deadly sins has worked on me, has given me pause. But the truly difference-making thing for me today, and in, indeed like the last couple of weeks, was trying to figure out how am I going to talk about wrath? Because wrath is complicated. And wrath touches on things that I don't want to admit about myself or about how I've lived in the world and done things. It is the kind of thing that just kind of stopped me up short several times, uh, just driving in my car and experiencing that, that, that reaction when somebody isn't paying attention and coming over into my lane, endangering me, and I start to feel the, the, the fire kind of like start to boil in my gut, and I say things that are unkind about that person and the people they associate with. Because this is something I think we all struggle with. And it's also tricky because most of you have been hurt by somebody who let their anger run unchecked. And it's also complicated because many of you were probably taught at some point that anger is never okay. And you felt the deep conflict in your heart in your inmost being because you were like, but no, I feel this and I don't think it's wrong because something's not fair. So no matter how we approach it, we all are coming to this with some history. And I want to just name that before we go into it because I don't want to speak lightly or glibly about something that can so profoundly impact us. But it impacts us because we were made to experience it. We were made to experience anger. But when we let that anger run unchecked and close down our perspective so that it really is only focused on ourselves, that's when we're in a relationship with wrath that really is a vice. We've made it more important. We've made it of ultimate importance 
rather than the God who is ultimately important to us. And how should we think about anger? Well, there are these two roommates, and they're talking about how they manage to live together peacefully. And one of them says, I don't get it. When I get mad at you, you don't fight back. How is it that you control your anger so much? And the other roommate responds, I clean the toilet. And the first roommate says, how does that help? And the other roommate says, well, I use your toothbrush. (laughs) Anger is how we deal with the existence of injustice. We want things to be fair. We want things to be right. And when they aren't fair and aren't right, we have this sensation, usually physically manifested. Maybe you identify with that kind of fire in your belly thing that I was describing about myself. But maybe you experience as, as like a hot flash, but there's actually like physical symptoms to the emotion of anger. And we get into that angry place and we want to do something about it. And the reason we experience that is because it is part of how God made us. Because ultimately, there's, there's just going to be three things I want to talk about when we think about wrath this morning. One of those is anger is a part of the imago Dei. Imago Dei is just that fancy Latin phrase for the image of God. So anger is part of how we are made in the image of God. The second thing we're going to look at is we're going to be looking at wrath as anger bent inward. And then we're going to think about what, the, what would make a huge difference in our lives so that we don't give in to the more sinful inclinations about wrath And that's going to be gentleness and self-control. So just three things. In this first thing, we need to recognize that God gets angry and that this is a good thing. When we go to Deuteronomy, what we find there in chapter 32, verse 35, is God declaring about himself, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. God is announcing to his people that those who reject him and actively work against his good and his people in the world, it's not going to go well for them. And he's declaring that he will act in wrath. Because when there is grievous sin, When there is injustice or oppression, God gets angry. God is not passive about these things. He gets angry. And he promises that he's going to answer the things that are destructive by wiping those things out. And we may think, but hey, what about this instance or that instance? Or we just think on the last few weeks and we think about Violence has like come upon our community in a variety of ways. How do we answer that? Why isn't God doing something? Oh, be assured, God is going to do something. He's not slow in keeping his promises, as some people count slowness. He's going to do it in his timing. 
But the good part of this is we know that God does answer these things. He does answer evil. He does come and wipe out those things that are destructive to the goodness that he brings into the world. And when we hear that, we understand that in God's anger, he can display his holy wrath perfectly. Because wrath is that active anger. And it is a beautiful expression of love and a beautiful expression of God's passion for justice. Now, some of us may not be as familiar with this because what we think of when we think of wrath is it's only ever bad. But we have to be reminded that God does demonstrate his wrath, but it is always in the context of his holiness his goodness, and his love. I cringe when I hear people describe their experience of God. You know, God in the Old Testament is just doing things in a fit of jealous rage. Well, if God was another person like you or me, waking up and putting on their pajamas one leg at a time, then sure, but that's not who God is. God is utterly transcendent, the creator and sustainer of all things. He has personhood, but he is not limited to the human personhood that we are. He knows all things. He is all-powerful. He has a perspective we cannot hope to have because in our own perspective, our experience closes us down to just what we have interacted with so that we have these points of view, right? And if God were as limited as I was with only his point of view, then, yeah, we can say that he has these fits of jealous rage when he expresses his wrath. But that's not who God is. That's not who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. He has revealed himself to be this utterly transcendent, utterly other, completely holy God. He doesn't have a point of view He has view. He sees it all, understands it all, and he's working it all together for his good, his glory, and it brings blessing to us. That is the truth of God's wrath as he's able to express it in utter holiness. And it is being expressed against, according to Paul in Romans 1, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is furious about how sin is messing up people, how it's messing up our lives, how it's crippling us with pain, how it's limiting us in how we seek to bless those around us, and it makes him furious, and he's doing something about it. He's done stuff about it, and he's ultimately going to wipe it out completely. He's doing something about sin and its destructive aftermath. And this includes these displays of his holy wrath. And we, as people, are made in his image. We're made to be like him. And one of the ways we're like him is we have the experience of anger. And in having the experience of anger, it's not that we're doing bad necessarily. In fact, 
You heard it in that New Testament reading in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin, right? In your anger, do not sin. Paul's not going to give instructions to the church unless they're able to do it. And here it is. It's possible to be angry and not sin. And our experience of anger can actually be helpful in indicating what are the things we really deeply care about. Now, I will tell you that I have struggled in the past with how to reconcile my experience of others' anger and how to think of it as something that might actually be constructive and good. Because I grew up around an angry person. And my experience of his anger was something that made me feel small and made me want to be smaller, made me want to disappear, if only to escape the angry gaze of rage boiling under the surface. And yet, in his wisdom, God gave me, in one of our kids, somebody who experiences anger regularly, but it's not always wrong. He would tell you, I can be an angry person. But he'll tell you also, I just get angry because I'll be in the room and I'll see that somebody's being treated unfairly and I just, I, I, I get hot. I just, I need to do something about it. Did you notice he wasn't saying that he was being treated unfairly. He's angry about the existence of it being unfair in the room. God used one of my sons to teach me that there's actually a healthy application of anger as an indicator that you can be passionate about things being just, about things being right. You can be angry about things being the way they ought to be. Does it make you angry when you hear of a friend's diagnosis that's not great? It does to me. And what it's doing is it's this emotional indicator of what I really care about. And sometimes I do care about the right things. I love my friend. I don't want them to suffer because of this condition they now have. I love the people in my neighborhood. I don't want them to have to like pick up and move because things are getting ugly. We understand what we care about many times through what makes us angry. And that righteous anger leads us to fight for good things, to advocate for good things. We want to see the right done in the world, and we also can do it without bringing needless harm. But, I know now I want to quote, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Everyone I know has a big butt. Well, here's the big butt. Anger, many times, is where sin takes hold. And we give in to the temptation to say, this injustice that I see is now personal, and I'm taking it personally. Thomas Aquinas said this about the way we as human beings interact with anger. He said that we get angry too easily, 
We get angrier than we should, and we stay angry too long. We tend to give in to wrath because we, we start to like make the offense bigger and bigger in our mind, and we make our wound deeper and deeper as we think about it compared to our offender. We start to emphasize how significant we are, our dignity, our prerogative. And sometimes we, we're willing to fight over these things. Not because it's in proportion to what actually happened, but because that's just where our sin took the reins of our anger and let it into a wrathful place. G.K. Chesterton said this, God commands us to love our neighbors and also our enemies because they are often the same people. We're going to look a little more deeply into this passage that we read together in Matthew chapter 5. And as we go there, Matthew is recording the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus gave that really encapsulates so much of what he was teaching about the kingdom of God. And in teaching these things, Jesus was trying to make clear to us that if we go just by the Ten Commandments, if we go just by the law as it was explained in the Old Testament, we may think of that as the ceiling, you know? Well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm good. But what Jesus does is he helps us to realize that God's law was actually the floor of the goodness that we can live out as humankind in the kingdom. And he's saying, you thought this was the standard. That's actually where that is. Let me tell you what the standard is. And so he does these different statements where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's just reframing just how good the kingdom is through just how good we need to think about how we interact with ourselves, God, and the world around us. And so you see in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's essentially quoting the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Many of us remember it as thou shalt not kill, but it is more specifically about the premeditated taking of the life of another. And what is going on there? Jesus is just establishing. You think this is the standard for how to relate to others, right? Let me tell you a little bit more. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, this escalated quickly. So Jesus is addressing human anger. And he's saying, he's saying, now if... If you're the kind of person who just stays angry at your brother or sister in Christ, 
If you're the kind of person who just determines, no, I just, I'm going to be angry with them. You know, some of the translations say angry without cause. And that's really getting at the heart of it. If you're the person who's just decided, I'm going to stay angry with them, then you are in danger of judgment. Judgment is coming for you. And he uses it in, in several different ways. And it's not necessarily an escalation. Jesus is just reiterating it in three different forms to get the point across. Because he says that if you're the kind of person who's going to stay angry at your brother or sister, or if you're the kind of person who insults your brother, and insults here is really the word raka in Greek, which the best translation, like many times it's translated as fool, but the, a better a better way to understand it for us would be empty-headed. If you say that one of your brothers or sisters is empty-headed, kind of what you're saying with that kind of fool flavor to it is you're saying they're kind of a godless idiot. So if you're willing to say that about somebody that you're, you know, seated in the same space for worship with, then judgment is coming. And what Jesus is helping us to understand with this is that even our petty squabbles can be revealed as our attempt to decide who's worth having around and who's not. Who's worth having in our community and who's not. And you know what that is? Like the, it's the subtitle of our whole sermon series. We're putting ourselves in the place of God as our judge. He's the only one who is holy enough, knows enough, cares enough to decide things appropriately. But we, sometimes in our wrath, when we are staying angry with somebody, we want to take that power for ourselves and decide, you know what, you're raka. You're kind of worthless. That's not our job. That's his job. And we should be intimidated because he knows all of our junk, right? And so Jesus is making it clear, this is the standard for how we relate to each other. We can't just stay angry with others. We can't just hang on to these slights on ourselves. We know that that's going to happen in a sin-infected world. And so why are we trying to decide who's worth life or not, who's worth time or not, who's worth flourishing or not? When we take the place of God as our holy judge, we're in imminent danger of judgment ourselves. So what can we do? We can slow down. We can pray. And if you're not sure what to pray when you're angry, there are multiple psalms that do a great job of this. Because the psalms can really teach us how to express ourselves fully to God. So I highly recommend that you spend time in the psalms to understand how do I, how do I express the anger that I'm feeling without just hanging on to it, letting it fester and letting it run wild with me so that now I'm trying to decide and ultimately, what can we do when we're experiencing wrath like this is leave it to God. 
Leave it to God to take care of those situations. Leave it to God to make it fair, to get even. Because wrath is ultimately a temptation to revenge. We want to make it even in our sight. But what do we even know about ourselves, about our own motives, much less what's been going on for that other person when they slighted us or offended us? Only God is going to know that clearly. And so it's good for us to leave it to God. As Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's quoting Deuteronomy. So these are some of the things we can do when we're feeling that experience well up, right? When we start to feel that, that feeling of like, okay, I'm angry and I kind of want to pay attention to this and I want to make sure that I'm not taking it to a bad place. What do I do with it? Well, just take it to God, pray it. But also, there is a, uh, there's a need for us to go even deeper. There's a need for us to go deeper because just recognizing our anger might just be the start. N.T. Wright said this, if part of human maturity is learning how to recognize your anger and deal with it before it gets out of control, we have to conclude that most of us are not very mature. Yeah, that one stings, doesn't it? It stings because I know myself, it is actually a lot of progress for me to recognize my anger when it flares. When things don't go the way I expect or something doesn't happen the way I intend it to happen, I get angry. And I'm beginning to recognize it, but I need something deeper. And I think that is what takes us to gentleness and self-control. And this is where the rest of this passage, though it's at first a little confusing, I think really does help us. In verse 23, we hear Jesus' words, So you are offering your gift... So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. First be reconciled. I mean, Jesus turns this really fast from how do you deal with the anger that you're feeling towards somebody And he says, well, think of it this way. If you're on your way to worship and remember that somebody is angry with you for something you did, go make it right. Be reconciled. In his beautiful kingdom dynamic, Jesus is telling us that even before the very high priority of worshiping the Lord together, we need to go and make things right when we have ourselves offended others. We need to make it a priority. We need to lean into life with that kind of deeply formed character of gentleness where we recognize that, oh, I've been hurt. You know what? I've probably hurt others. I need to go do business with that first. And then Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser, verse 25, while you are going with him to court. 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Come to terms quickly. Coming to terms quickly means that we cannot just leave conflict untouched. Conflict doesn't just stay on pause. Conflict tends to, and I'm going to use a really nice word here, it tends to fester. It tends to get worse over time. And what Jesus is saying is, don't let that conflict fester. Have enough self-control to humbly go and try to come to terms, make whatever deal is necessary to bring some peace in that conflict. Because that festering of conflict will destroy not only the relationships, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat away at the people who are involved. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that thing where you had to get distance from that person who had hurt you so profoundly, but you're still angry with them, and somehow, even though they're no longer in your life, you're, it's still working on you. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but do you find yourself having an argument when you're driving in the car alone? Uh-huh. I'm driving and suddenly I'm talking to that guy in college. You know, that thing I finished 30-odd years ago? Maybe I'm the only one, but like, that's the kind of lasting effects that can come when we give in and indulge this, this desire that's twisted. It's a desire, it's a holy longing for things to be well, but it gets twisted by sin into this self-aggrandizing, prideful claim that that person who wronged me needs to pay. And so I'm going to take my pound of flesh out of them in this conversation while I'm on this slow part of 70. That's what happens. And that's why Jesus uses this imagery of if you don't come to terms quickly, you're going to be put in prison and it's going to take forever to pay off. That is the kind of results we experience when we have that unresolved anger festering in our hearts. And so, how do we get this kind of gentleness, this kind of self-control consistently in our lives? How do we get that? We have to go to him. We have to go to Jesus who endured the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. If you want to think about it this way, when Paul is describing God revealing his anger towards sin, we need to think of the cross. We need to think about what Jesus himself endured on our behalf. He endured that because that is what sin deserves. And he took all of it for us. He took all of it so that we would not have to face that wrath. If you are afraid that God is going to judge you, 
remember that God has already judged you in his son Jesus. And so now you are dearly beloved and accepted and redeemed. You are bought back from that wrath. And Jesus is going to return. And in wrath, he's going to eradicate the rule of sin and the tyranny of the evil one. Because when we believe and trust in Jesus, we are freed now from the tyranny of sinful wrath. And we can actually love what he loves and be angry with him about injustice. We can be angry with him about sin. We can be angry with him. And we can cheer the destruction of evil. And as we continue to walk in him, trusting him consistently, Jesus can reveal in us his beautiful character, his blessed character that is ultimately gentle and self-controlled. We can experience the blessed meekness of the kingdom. And meekness here, I want to be really clear about what I mean. Jesus himself was meek. That does not mean that he was weak. He was actually the strongest person ever to walk the earth. As God and man, fully and completely, both natures, one person, he is the epitome of strength that ever could have been in humankind. But he was meek because he kept that strength under control and meted it out only as necessary. So when we think of being meek, we don't need to think of being cowering or unable, incapable of doing things. We actually need to think of meekness as, like, have you ever seen a cart horse? A cart horse is big. They're the pickup trucks of horses, okay? And if you've ever seen the Clydesdales, if you've ever been on the tour of the Budweiser plant in St. Louis and you get to go see the Clydesdales, these are cart horses. They're huge. They're massive. You get the sense they could destroy you by flicking their tail. But they're completely under control such that the way you interact with them, they're gentle. They're actually cool with you giving them a pat on the nose. That's what meekness really is. And that's what I think Jesus longs to craft in us so that we can display his character in the world, not claiming the judge position for ourselves, but submitting to his position as our judge and gladly letting him settle those scores Seek vengeance on our behalf and give us the capacity to radically forgive those who harm us. Let's pray to that end, that God will form that in us. Please bow with me and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the goodness of your word and how it teaches us in so many ways. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be truly meek, truly gentle and self-controlled. And Lord, that you would do so so that we are not so easily, so readily tempted as we may find ourselves to be to take vengeance, to settle the score ourselves, to be the decider 
deciding who is good and who is not. Lord, please draw us closer in to you. Help us to remember what your son endured on our behalf. And Lord, help us to draw close to you that we would know you are for us. So what do we have to fear from the world around us? Lord, give us this confidence and create in us the deep well of joy and hope, knowing that you have come to save. And Lord, we do ask that you would be saving us from this dreadful sin and from all sin that would distract us from knowing you and the power of your resurrection in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen.